Welcome to this Ubula audio presentation of a Rick Brandt science adventure story, The Wailing Octopus, by John Blaine. Volume 6, Chapter 12, Clouds Over Clipper Key Rick jerked frantically on the tie rope, four times for danger. Then he turned and swam rapidly back the way they had come. At first, he felt resistance on the line. Then Zircon hurried to catch up. Not until they were barely within seeing distance of the light did Rick stop. Then he took his belt slate, started the camera for light, and rode, Bubbles go by them if we are under. They see. Zircon held a hand to his head in a sign of chagrin that he had forgotten, and then he wrote, How we get close. Rick pondered the problem. The bubbles had alarmed him in another way, too. It was possible that the man on the boat could see four sets of bubbles rising where only two were supposed to be, and he couldn't possibly escape the feeling that it was important to get a look at what the frogmen were doing. There was no way out of it. He just had to take the chance. He wrote, I think I make pass holding breath. No bubbles. Take picks. You stay out of range and cover me with gun. Rick had just one hope of getting away with it. He had to assume the frogmen would be busy with whatever they were doing in the cave. If so, their backs would be to the open sea. At least the chance was worth taking, Zircon wrote. Okay, but be careful. Rick didn't need the warning. Together, they swam back until they were close to the glow of the lights. He hoped that the darkness and the breaking surf above were concealing their bubbles. Finally, Zircon halted. Rick unsnapped the line that held him to the scientist, squeezed Zircon's shoulder, and swam away from the reef toward the open water. He kept his head turned so he could keep the light in the field of his vision. When he was out far enough, he swam upward until he was on a level with the light and directly out to sea from it. He inhaled, filling his lungs. Then, with his camera out thrust, he drove directly toward the light. It wasn't hard to hold his breath, not with his heart acting as a stopper in his throat. Light grew clearer. He started the camera and kept moving with powerful strokes, and he held his legs still and let inertia carry him in a silent glide. He had to get closer. The light grew in intensity and details grew clearer. He saw the frogmen and their backs were to him. Between them, he caught a glimpse of something brassy and round, and he saw the octopus clinging to the reef to one side of the cave. He held the camera button as long as he dared. Then, when it seemed that he would glide right into the frogmen, he twisted sideways and bent backwards like a circus acrobat, flippers moving in powerful thrusts. It was an excellent underwater imitation of a wingover, the plane maneuver that reversed direction by diving and turning. He planed downward until he touched bottom, then thrust himself with frantic kicks away from the vicinity of the cave. His lungs were about to burst, he felt, when he finally drew a deep breath. The gurgling sigh of his bubbles was sheer relief. He kept moving until he bumped headlong into Hobart Zircon. The scientist reached out and snapped his rope onto Rick's belt, then tugged twice. Zircon led the way along the reef bottom until they reached the spot where they estimated Tony and Scotty would be waiting. 
As they started for the surface, Rick switched on the camera and looked at his watch. They had been under only ten minutes. He had been waiting for the warning constriction of air running out. Zircon broke water and instantly submerged again. He led the way a few feet under the surface to where he had seen Tony and Scotty, then led Rick to the top once more. Tony and Scotty saw them emerge and without a word turned and started back toward the cottage, pushing their floats. Instead of bothering with the snorkel, Rick kept the aqualung mouth in place and swam a few feet under the surface, guiding himself by the wake of the others. He was tired and relieved. The group crossed over the reef and swam to the beach in front of the cottage. There they gathered at the water's edge and stripped off their gear. For long moments no one spoke. Then Zircon asked, Did you see anything, Rick? A little. Enough to get an answer, I think. We haven't discovered a new breed of octopus because they were installing something in the cave. Something that makes noise. Do you know that, or did you infer that? I didn't hear the noise, if that's what you mean, but what else could it be? Too bad, Scotty said. Now we won't have a new species named after us. Come on, give us the word. How was it? Rick said with complete truth. I was scared to death. So was I, Zircon admitted. That first sensation of complete blackness caused an emotional reaction. Then I began to see that we had done a rather foolish thing. And I almost got us into trouble by forgetting that we sent up a constant stream of bubbles. He told them of his plan to get under the cave and of Rick's warning. Yeah, we thought of your bubbles, Scotty told them. I talked it over with Tony and came within an ace of diving after you, although I doubt I could have reached the bottom and found you. But we watched and we couldn't see any bubbles at all. It was too dark and we were right where the water was breaking. My question is, did you get pictures? Zircon wanted to know. Oh yeah, I'm sure I did. The camera was going and it probably saw much more than I did, since cameras don't get scared. But it won't do us much good. Not right now. We can't develop the film. The boys picked up the equipment and carried it to the water witch. Rick turned off the compressor. He was too tired to wait until all the tanks were full. Time enough for that in the morning. When he and Scotty returned to the cottage, Tony greeted them with cups of hot chocolate, and they sat on the porch and enjoyed them. Let's sum up what we know, Zircon invited. If anyone agrees we know anything worth summing. I think we do, Rick said. And I think we ought to get it to Steve Ames. We don't know what he's after, or what that gang that he's fighting is after. But we know that one of them is here. Yes, and we also know that Steve's agency is primarily concerned with protecting military secrets, Sircom added. I agree with Rick. We must get word of these mysterious frogmen to him. We discussed that earlier, Tony recalled. In view of our discussion, it would seem that either Rick or Scotty or both of them must fly to Charlotte or Molly and tell him personally. Scotty pointed at the sky. Have any of you looked up there? All of them did. The moon was just rising, and there was enough light to see heavy cirrus moving high overhead. There's a front of some kind moving down on us, Scotty said. And did you notice the swells tonight? Big ones. I'm no first-class weather forecaster, but all the signs are there. We're in for a storm. The question is, how soon will it arrive? He's right, Zircon agreed. 
Glad you're observant, Scotty. Frankly, I hadn't even bothered looking at the weather. I suppose I thought it would just continue to be perfect. Rick stared at the gathering clouds for long moments, then put into words the thing that had been bothering him. You know, there has been a cloud over this vacation almost from the moment we landed at Charlotte Amalie. We didn't even want to get involved in anything but diving and exploring, but we got pulled by the ears into a hot case. Steve warned us off that first day. The warning didn't help because we got dragged back into things when we went swimming, and then again at the hotel. Three faces were turned toward him, listening. He was expressing what all of them had been thinking. We thought we'd leave trouble behind when we came here, Rick continued. But it was waiting for us. We didn't even look for it until tonight. He drew a deep breath. Well, from now on, we have to become the hunters. Steve Ames doesn't know there's anything strange going on here, but we do, and it's up to us to find out what it is. The goings-on in the octopus cave have something to do with the case Steve is working on. And what Steve is working on has something important to do with national security. He smiled grimly. I know none of you are going to disagree with this, because it's the only thing we can do. Professor Zircon knew it tonight when he tried to excuse our looking in on the frogmen as curiosity. Zircon nodded silently. From now on, Rick concluded, we have to operate as unofficial Yannick agents until we can get word to Steve Ames so he and his men can take over. Chapter 13 Message in the Storm The wind blew. It piled the surf high on the reef and blew the tops from the waves between the reef and the shore. Hour by hour, the wind stiffened until the breakers on the shore were higher than those through which the spin drifters had swum on the reef. The first hours of the morning were spent getting ready for a blow. The water witch was secured by spring lines and extra fenders were put over her sides. The four hauled the sky wagon high onto the beach by sheer muscle power, then turned the plane into the wind. Rick and Scotty salvaged the concrete block foundation from the wreck of the cottage where they had found the planks, and used the blocks for land anchors on the plane. The shutters were checked and closed on the front of the cottage. The shed where the tank had broken through was repaired, as well as improvised tools and materials allowed, and all loose gear was stowed inside. The rain came. It drove with the wind into the front of the cottage in a continuous thunder. Its force carried it under the door, through the cracks beside the window frames. The spindrifters were forced to shred rags to stuff into cracks. In the kitchen, the roof began to leak, and soon every available pot and pan was being used to catch drippings. Rick worked almost in silence, not joining in the banter of his friends. As was his way, he worried the problem of the frogmen and their mysterious behavior the way his dog Dismal would worry a bone. He discarded a dozen possible reasons for their actions, including underwater communications, bombs, and an unusual way of fishing. He pondered on the relations of the spindrift group, or the lack of them, with the frogmen, and re-examined their various theories. First premise. The frogmen, specifically Steve's former shadow, hadn't recognized them or the water witch. Second premise. The frogmen considered them harmless tourists, 
interested only in diving to the wreck and therefore to be watched, but not considered dangerous. He rather liked that one. It would mean that the chicken had been dropped mischievously, to use Zircon's word, to scare them out of the immediate vicinity. But there were other possibilities. First premise, the frogmen knew of their connection with Steve. Second premise, the frogmen weren't worried about people with Yannig connections. This might be explained by superior weapons in the hands of the frogmen, coupled with the assumption that the spin drifters had no communication with Steve. Might also be explained by the knowledge of their real reason for being on Clipper Key. Rick didn't care for the last two premises. The first one seemed more reasonable. After all, they were not sure that the former tale had seen the Water Witch in St. Thomas or had known of their connection with it. On the contrary, to get to Clipper Key so soon after the Spindrifters arrived, the frogmen must have left about the same time the scientists did. There was even a possibility they had arrived ahead of the Spindrift group and that the frogmen's boat had been out when Rick and Scotty had first spotted the diving equipment in the house. Anyway, there had been no sign of any tail but the Virgin Islander while they were around the pier and on the water witch. Either he or Scotty would almost certainly have spotted a second man, especially since they had seen him before. There was a major precaution, however, to be taken. He and Scotty must not let Steve's warmer tail get a good look at them. They had to assume he had recognized their clumsiness for what it was, a deliberate stall. Scotty poked him and Rick suddenly realized he had been leaning for quite a long while on the broom he was supposed to be using. Made up your mind about anything? Scotty asked. Rick knew his friend had been watching him. During their many adventures, each had developed a rather unusual understanding of how the other's minds worked. Partly, Rick replied. He told Scotty his thoughts. You make sense, Scotty agreed. Then added practically. But I don't see what difference it makes, whether they know about our connection with Steve or not. The moment they catch us snooping, they'll just assume we're enemies. Till then, they'll let us alone just as they've been doing. Zircon and Scotty joined forces to prepare lunch. The temperature had dropped sharply, and hot soup and hamburger sandwiches were welcome. After lunch, Rick braved the storm long enough to go to the water witch for his camera. He returned to the cottage soaked to the skin. We'll need diving equipment to go outside if this keeps up, he announced. He took the camera case apart and disconnected the circuits. Then he went outside again with tools in hand and got into the sky wagon. The plane had a heater switch that would do. He removed it, leaving the wires to dangle for the moment. If the heater was needed, he could put the wires together again. That done, he sat in the plane and racked his memory for a source of sheet rubber. There was none, but he recalled a repair kit for the plastic floats and their tool supply. He found it and took it back to the house. Using the awl blade on his scout knife, he bored a hole through the plastic back of the case and installed the switch. Then he reconnected the circuits so the new switch would turn on only the infrared light. He waterproofed the switch as best he could, making gaskets from a rubber jar ring he found in the kitchen. He knew, however, that the switch wouldn't be waterproof under pressure. He took a sheet of plastic repair material from the float repair kit and shaped it carefully with a knife. After much trial and error, he succeeded in cementing it onto the case so it would protect the switch from the outside 
but left enough slack for the switch to be operated through the flexible patch. Satisfied, he put it aside to dry. It was nearly time for dinner when he finished. He took a hand in cooking ham and eggs with fried potatoes, while Tony prepared a salad and made coffee. As they ate, Zircon gestured toward the front of the house. Getting worse instead of letting up. This must be a hurricane, although I've never heard of one quite this early in the season. Guess much worse, we'll have to anchor the cottage down, Scotty observed. They finished just in time to tune in for the weather forecast from St. Thomas. According to the announcer, the storm was now centered off the island of St. Croix, moving in a northwesterly direction. That meant it would pass St. Thomas and perhaps come very close to them. The announcer said, While the storm has many of the characteristics of a hurricane, including the general form and wind velocities, we hesitate to designate it as one. In other words, Tony said. It's a hurricane, but we'll call it something else because it's too early in the season for a hurricane. Whatever it is, we'll have more of it, Zircon stated. Rick switched to the Navy command frequency in time to intercept a conversation with a destroyer somewhere off the British Virgin Islands. The destroyer had just lost one of its boats. At four minutes after six, the air went silent. And then a new voice took over the microphone, and the voice said, a message for the ones who hunted blue sheep. That's us, Rick gasped. When Steve had dispatched Rick, Scotty, and Zircon to Tibet, it had been with a cover story that they were going to hunt the blue sheep, called Barals, in the mountains of West China. Only Steve would know that. The message was from him. The static crackled, but the message was clear. The one who started the hunt needs the biggest hunter. Only the biggest hunter. He should be delivered as soon as possible. Call your usual contact before arrival and say that the doctor is coming and to notify the patient. The message was repeated, while the four strained to be certain they had heard every word. When the normal traffic resumed, Rick switched to set off. It appears, Zircon said slowly, that I'm wanted. Yep. Scotty grinned. The demand is there, all right. The delivery is a long way off. The storm punctuated his words. Chapter 14 Below the Dark Coral The sky was overcast, ceiling about 2,000 feet, visibility about two miles. The wind was moderate and steady. Rick examined the water in front of the cottage and told his friends. I can take off all right, but I don't want to leave without a weather report, or we might find ourselves with no place to land. I'm going to swap this radio for a newspaper, Scotty grumbled. He had been trying without success to get a weather report. Tony Briotti looked at the sky wagon, brows furrowed, and then asked, Rick, couldn't you turn on the radio on the plane and get a weather report from the airport at Charlotte Amali? Rick was climbing into the sky wagon before Tony finished. Of course he could. And he called back, Yeah, I'm a chump. The set warmed up and Rick called the airport, then held the phones to his ears to hear the reply through the heavy static. When the airport answered, he asked for a weather report for the area between St. Thomas and Clipper Key. He got it and climbed out, face thoughtful. Well, apparently the storm is having a pup, he told the others. 
We're in a lull at the moment. The main storm swung off to the north, but there's another one right on its tail. We just about have time to get to Charlotte and Molly and back before the second one closes in. The group went into action fast. All four pushed the plane into the water. Zircon ran to pack a bag, and Tony went to get the film Rick had taken for Zircon to carry to Steve. Scotty and Rick went through the checklist, inspecting the plane for possible storm damage. Then Rick started the engine and warmed it up. By the time they were ready, Zircon was climbing aboard. Scotty yelled, Tony and I will keep the home fires burning. Don't waste any time, Rick. I won't. Zircon closed the cabin door and Rick taxied out. In a few moments he was airborne, swinging seaward over the north end of the island. He looked down and saw two of the frogmen. They were in the front of the house, watching the plane. Be sure to tell Steve everything, Rick reminded the big scientist. And don't forget to give him that film. I won't have time to see him unless he meets the plane. It doesn't matter, though, because you know everything Scotty and I do. I'll be glad to get actively to work on this confounded business, Zircon stated. So curious about that brass ball the frogman had in the cave that I'm about to burst. Rick set a compass course for St. Thomas, flying just under the clouds. When they were a half an hour out, he contacted the airport again and asked for the weather. The report hadn't changed. He told the reporter operator, The doctor is coming. Please notify the patient. He could almost see the operator jerk to attention as the headphones gave out a crisp, Roger! He sat down on a heavy chop at Charlotte and Molly, and the sky wagon gave them a rough ride as he taxied to the pier. Lieutenant Jimmy Kelly was waiting in a Navy sedan with an armed guard in attendance. Rick supervised the refueling of his plane at the pier gasoline depot, a task he would not relegate to anyone else. The presence of attendants made it impossible to talk to the Navy lieutenant. As Rick tightened the gas cap, Jimmy Kelly said, Hop into your great mechanical bird and shove off, Birdman. You'll just about beat the weather home as it is. Don't stop to fish on the way. I won't. Professor Zircon will tell you an interesting story, and we'll be monitoring the command channel at six for any advice you can give us. Okay, don't get your feet wet. Rick waved goodbye to Jimmy and Zircon, then taxied off to the clear area and took off. The ceiling was lower than on the trip in, and he almost missed Clipper Key because of the strong winds and low visibility. He spotted the southern tip of the island just in time to avoid going right on by it. He landed with beads of perspiration on his forehead. If he had missed, with luck, he might have hit Puerto Rico, but more likely he would have had to make a landing in the open ocean. Scotty and Tony came to greet him. We were worried, Tony said. It's closing in fast. Yeah, I was getting a little worried myself, Rick admitted. Anything new here? Scotty gestured toward the northern end of the island. Our pals have been busy diving. They got the brass ball or whatever it is and stowed it aboard their boat. I kept an eye on them through the binoculars. Also, I suspect they're going to do some more diving because they left their equipment on the boat. Rick didn't particularly care at the moment. The flight back had been something of a strain. Let him go. We can't do anything about it. Anyway, not in broad daylight. Maybe tonight we could have a look. They spent the afternoon indoors, napping or reading, 
unable to swim or fish because the second storm had arrived on schedule. Then, a few minutes before six, Rick turned on the radio to the Davy Command Channel. At six on the nose, the radio admitted, A message for the blue sheep hunters. The blue sheep seen by the big hunter and the little hunter is important. Obtain more information if possible, but remember that the owners of the sheep are also mighty hunters. The snapshots of the sheep were fine. The message was repeated. When they were sure there was no more, Rick switched the set off. Well, we're in it now. And with Steve's blessing. What are we going to do? Scotty shrugged. Well, now we steal the brass ball. Didn't Steve's message stay to get more information? Apparently, the pictures turned out well, if I understand that reference to snapshots correctly, Tony said. Be serious, Scotty. What can we do next? Keep an eye on the frogman, I guess. Play it by ear. Can't see anything else we can do. We probably could steal the brass ball, all right, but they'd know right away who did it, because we're the only other people on the island. Have you looked recently to see what they're doing? Tony asked. Neither of the young men had. Both went to the front porch, but the frogman's cottage was invisible through the driving rain. We'll have to actually go over there, Rick said. After dark, Scotty added. In about an hour. It'll be plenty dark then. Do you suppose the brass ball is still on the boat? Rick inquired thoughtfully. We might be able to sneak aboard after dark and get a picture of it from close up. We could examine it and have something definite to report to Steve. That's a possibility, Scotty admitted. Anyway, we could at least get ready. Rick rechecked the camera on infrared unit. He loaded the camera with a fresh roll of film. Then the three of them sat in the living room over coffee and listened to the storm batter at the front of the house until it was nearly dark outside. What now? Tony inquired. Do we all go or just one of us? No point in all of us getting soaked, Scotty said. You got any experience with this kind of spine, Tony? The archaeologist had not. He smiled. Till I came to Spindrift, I led a rather quiet, academic sort of life. Except for the war, of course. Then Scotty or I had better go, Rick said. Or both of us. Scotty shook his head. No need for both. It's only a reconnaissance mission anyway. Toss you for it. Rick produced a coin. All right, call it. He flipped it as Scotty claimed heads. It was tails. Best two out of three? Scotty invited. Rick grinned. And after that, best three out of five? Scotty growled, All right, I'll go. He got ready by taking off shoes and socks. He could change his shirt and shorts when he returned. He slipped through the back door and was gone. Rick turned on the radio and tried for a weather report and settled for a Miami disc jockey who was playing some good records. The static was bad, but the station came through clearly enough to make listening worthwhile. Scotty was back before a dozen tunes had been played. He sat down, ignoring the water that dripped from him. Listen, our friends just rounded the northern tip of the island in the boat. They're heading south, just inside the eastern reef. What do you make of that? Rick pictured the movements of the enemy boat from Scotty's description. They can't be putting out to sea, otherwise they'd be outside the reef. And they're not interested in anything on the island, or they'd have walked. 
I'd say they're planning to do some night diving on the eastern side of the island. In this kind of weather? Tony asked incredulously. Sure, it's stormy on top, but once you're below the wave motion, it's pretty quiet down there. They could dive. Scotty stood up. If they can, well then, so can we. And there was no denying that. They made a trip to the Water Witch and collected their equipment, then planned what they would do. We'll all use lungs, Pony said. We have three regulators and there are plenty of full tanks, enough for two dives each. However, we only have two pairs of glasses for the dark-like camera. I'll yield to Scotty as the more experienced diver, so you and he use the glasses, Rick. I'll stay on top or near the top with a single float and a gun. If I use the lung, I can stay submerged most of the time and not have to fight the waves. Lash yourself to the float, Scotty cautioned. And we'll use a buddy line, Rick added. The same one the professor and I used. Scotty, you take a gun. I'll take the camera. If I see any trouble in the making, I'll bang on my air tank. You should be able to hear that for quite a distance. There was nothing else to be planned in advance. They picked up their equipment and went out the back door into the storm, crossing the island through the palms. As they emerged onto the eastern shore, Scotty called, Look about 500 yards north. The lights of the frogmen's boat, visible as bright halos through the rain, were tossing violently inside the eastern reef. Apparently the boat was anchored. The rain was too thick for them to see any movement aboard or to see details of the boat itself. Move carefully, Rick cautioned. He had to raise his voice to be heard above the storm. We haven't explored this shore. It could be full of coral heads. I doubt it, Scotty returned. It would be too dangerous for the boat in this kind of weather, even if they knew the channel. Rick's right about careful movement nonetheless, Tony replied. We have to move with care, especially near the reef, he indicated his float. I'll never be able to tow this through the water, so I'll leave that in the palm grove. We can pick our way back here. We shouldn't need it with lungs anyway. Do you boys have rescue packs? The packs were plastic floats compressed into packages no larger than a cigarette pack. They contained a carbon dioxide cartridge and could be inflated simply by squeezing them, which punctured the cartridge. The boys had carried them on their weight belts for so long that they took them for granted. They donned their equipment, then walked down to the beach. The surf was not heavy since the wind was blowing from the opposite side of the island. Nonetheless, there was enough water motion to lift a fine screen of sand and dust. The camera will be useless until we get into deeper water, Rick called. Let's rope together and swim straight out. They waded in, awkward in the fins, till they were deep enough for swimming. Then all adjusted mouthpieces and started out. Rick tried the infrared light intermittently, but not until they were in about 20 feet of water did the royal bottom allow its use. He led the way to the reef, and the others followed in file. The reef was closer to the surface than on the western side. Rick had to swim along it until he found a place where he could cross without being buffeted by breakers. Once across, he swam down the face of the reef, knowing that the trip was hard on Tony because the underwater world was completely dark to one without light or glasses with which to see the infrared illumination. Rick found a fairly level shelf at about 30 feet and swam along it, keeping close to the reef wall 
until he thought they were in the vicinity of the frogmen. Then he pulled twice on the rope and a signal to surface, knowing the Scotty would pass the signal along to Tony. He emerged in a rough sea, only yards from the point on the reef opposite the anchored boat. He was in time to see two frogmen climb down the boat's ladder. They got into the water, and the third man, on the deck, lowered the brass object to them. Rick had no fear they would be seen from the boat. Their heads would be hidden by the breaking waves, and their bubbles would merge with the natural foam. He saw at once what their tactics should be. He pulled Tony and Scotty to him, then let his mouthpiece drop. Putting his lips close to their ears, he said, softly, If it's like last time, they won't be down long. Scotty and I will track them to find out where they go and watch what they're doing. Then after they leave, we'll see if they left anything behind. Scotty and Tony nodded. Tony untied the line that held him to Scotty. Rick replaced his mouthpiece, cleared a little mist from his face mask, and led the way down. This time, the infrared light operated continuously. Now and then, Rick worked the toggle switch through the loose plastic covering and shut the unit off while he searched for visible light. He found it far down the face of the reef. The camera made it easy and his mind was at rest because this time nature made it impossible for their bubbles to give them away to surface watchers. There were heavy swells on the surface, he knew because of the pressure surges in his ears, but otherwise there was no sign of the storm. He grinned because he suddenly realized he felt dry. On the surface, with the rain beating at him, he had felt like a drowned kitten. Moving with confidence gained in his first experience, he led the way seaward, then went to the level of the light. Soon they were close enough to see the frogmen working over something on a coral ledge of the reef face. They hovered motionless watching, and as one of the frogmen moved, they saw that it was the brass ball. Rick started his camera. He had an advantage because the frogmen were concentrating on what they were doing, their backs to him. He moved in cautiously, camera grinding, then backed away again when he thought he had enough long shots. One of the frogmen moved away a few feet, and Rick's breathing stopped as the man's belt light flashed toward them. Had the frogman been looking, he would have seen the boys, but he was too interested in the second frogman's actions. The second frogman crouched over the brass object, hand moving. Rick recoiled as a whale lanced through his head with painful impact. He felt the rope tighten as Scotty involuntarily drew away. It was not the octopus then. It was the brass ball that wailed. But why? For what possible reason? The frogmen were apparently satisfied. One of them picked up the powerful light they had been using and turned it off. Then, with only belt lights, they started back up the reef. Rick waited until the lights were no longer visible. He glanced at his depth gauge and wristwatch. They were at 80 feet. There was plenty of air left. He swam to the brass ball, camera grinding. He had never seen anything quite like it. The brass sphere was mounted on a box about 12 inches square and 6 inches high. From the sphere, two rounded projections thrust out. He identified a waterproof switch on the box and two small knobs mounted on calibrated plates. These were obviously controls, but he had no idea what they controlled. Steve would want close-ups. Rick worked his camera focus and took shots from every angle. 
When he had enough, he pulled twice on the rope in a signal to surface. Scotty motioned to him to lead the way. As Rick started up, four metallic clangs, irregularly spaced, rang faintly in his ears. Tony was banging on his tank in the signal for trouble. Rick instantly changed course and followed the bottom, watching the water overhead for any sign of the frogmen. When he reached the spot below the point on the reef where Tony should have been waiting, he turned toward the surface, moving slowly, searching for any sign of activity. However, there was no sign of whatever had alarmed Tony. He paused a few inches under the surface, then carefully put his face into the air. Scotty surfaced beside him. There was no sign of Tony. Rick peered through his mask and saw that the boat was still anchored in the same place. There were figures on its deck. However, there were four of them. Four. He ripped his mask off for a clearer look and his heart skipped a beat. The frogmen had Tony. 